Hi, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Today, my interview with ancient Egyptian dream practices and just general dream expert, Sarah Janes. Hi, welcome to the show. Um, my conversation with Sarah Janes today uh, was very enjoyable. Sarah is an expert in the ancient Egyptian dream practices and, and dream temples of ancient Egypt. But beyond that, she's also a very thoughtful and interesting uh, person about dreams in general. She is a lucid dreamer and a vivid dreamer of dreams. She's also a great uh, conversationalist. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do as well. Please like and subscribe on whatever platform you are um, enjoying this on, and uh, you can get more of this kind of content. Uh, thanks very much. Sarah Janes, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, you are interesting to me. Uh, well, yeah, fascinating to me because I... Um, my show is all about uh, just kind of trying to understand uh, myself and, and human beings more. Um, oh, my internet connection is unstable. Is it coming back? Okay, cool. Um, and you are, you're, you're an expert in, in something that's a, a huge part of our mind that gets overlooked, uh, the subject of dreams. So, um, yeah. I, yeah. How, how do you, you, you have, you have one of those things that could never be a job description, like your life could never be, you know, a job description. So how do you describe what you do to people? I mean, when, to, when people ask. Um, I suppose I, I do a lot of research about sleep and dreaming and with a particular emphasis on dreaming and, um, the thing that I'm really interested in is the use of dreaming in ancient culture. So a lot of what I research is about um, ancient cultures using dreaming for spiritual or physical well-being. Hmm. So the, but, but I get the sense from all that I've seen that um, you're studying this, not just as an academic exercise, that this is, this is something you feel is very, um, important for for people now it, 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 am i am i right in thinking that it's not just anthropological yeah, significance yeah. No, i do run quite a lot of uh, lucid dream workshops and dream workshops and i think sleep is something that's really important at the moment and especially with what's happening with coronavirus a lot mm. of people are contacting me saying they're having a lot of anxiety dreams mm -hmm. or the, a lot of their fears worries and stresses are being suppressed during the day and emerging in these like COVID-19 mm. and especially, especially anxiety type nightmares. Yeah. Wow. Um, which makes 
perfect sense that that things would happen that way, I guess, because COVID-19 is such a, for many people, it's kind of such an unseen outside the walls kind of enemy, just like, and so it's, it, it's sort of outside the walls of their own subconscious. Yeah, as, and as also bombarded with information about it at the moment. So mm-hmm. when you do sleep and you dream about it, it tends to kind of manifest in trying to make sense of the situation, I think. Mm-hmm. or uh, representing COVID-19 in emotional situations, which is quite interesting. So seeing yeah. the COVID-19 anxiety represented by people that you're in relationships with or uh, oh. anxiety-causing situations. Man, that, that is so interesting. And it's, I mean, you must, you must kind of become a bit of an armchair psychologist um after having heard so many people's dreams and and kind of interpretations of so many people's dreams um do you do you find that like do you find that uh, like that do, do you actually like counsel people or people just talk to you kind of anecdotally yeah anecdotally really i don't do much in terms of dream interpretation I always think that the best person to interpret their dream is the dreamer but Mm -hmm. that's another issue that comes up because a lot of people are unfamiliar with their dream terrain they're not necessarily recognizing what their unconscious mind is trying to tell them because they're unfamiliar with the language that the unconscious is using so Mm -hmm. a lot of my workshops are about familiarizing yourself with your unconscious with your kind of recurring motifs I always think of dreamers as being film directors in a way you know I did film studies at school and this idea of a film director having an oeuvre and these recurring motifs I think it's very true of you as a dreamer you can have these symbols and these motifs and these ideas and mythological or archetypal stories that keep playing out over and over and again Mm. and what you do find is when you uh, unpick what some of those stories mean you'll stop dreaming those dreams that's really true of especially things like recurring nightmares or Mm. anxiety causing dreams. Well, that kind of flies in the face too of uh, maybe a modernist worldview of, of kind of scientifically studying things and saying like, this means this. I've even seen websites that say like, this means this and this means this. And uh, I like that. I like that individual kind of subjective idea, but it does make things, quite a bit more complicated for people, you know, who, who want to. That's why I think the yeah. ancients were quite good at dreaming because they had quite a well-established mythological kind of uh, lexicon, really. Like mm. they had quite established stories, certain symbols, creatures had strong um, mythological meanings. Mm. And the people in a society were very familiar with what those things mean, in particular in the dream temples in ancient Greece. The symbol was a snake, and the snake is a, is a very sort of potent primal symbolic image. And I think there are some there are some of those types of things that can be overlaid in our modern consciousness quite easily. Like we have a kind of you know cultural identity and a uh, perpetuating memory of our culture so a lot of animals and things like that i often dream of animals they have certain symbolic and mythological meanings that depending upon your experience of life and the kind of priorities the sort of upbringing that you've had certain Mm -hmm. things are going to be emphasized 
in your life in terms of um, meaning, you know, like I always dream about birds. I have lots of mm. dreams about birds and I was in the young ornithologist club and my mum and dad were really into birds and I've always loved them. So I've read a lot about birds and the sort of mythological context as well as the, even the sort of scientific information about them, like the way they rear their young or the kinds of relationships they have, all of that sort of thing feeds into what um, certain symbols mean in the dream state. What a bird means in your dream, yeah, uh, versus what somebody else means. So exactly, not people that aren't into birds won't. They wouldn't. It wouldn't mean anything to them. But right. for me, there's like usually some significance with the types of birds I dream about. Right. I. Uh, uh, that that makes perfect sense. And I've actually had I've had things dreams in my life where I I didn't tell anybody about them because I was sure that people would interpret them wrong. Like specifically. Mm, no, yeah. Well, like having sex with your dad and stuff like that. Holy <laughs> shit. Yes. No, I'm, that's not a joke. Like I, I, I won't get into it, but it was like, the, I've had several throughout my life, a recurring sexual uh, motif of, or, or genre of dreams, I guess, in my oeuvre. And, uh, <laughs> and a lot of them have been same sex. And, you know, I, I'm a happily married uh, heterosexual man with kids and, and stuff like that. And, and so it, it was, it, it was really strange. This is probably, I don't have a super active dream life, but this is one of those things where I would wake up and say, I'm not bothered by this dream. Like, uh, like it, it didn't leave me with a weird, it didn't leave me with a weird feeling. I mean, it left me with the feeling that I need to think about things. And, uh, what, what I came to the conclusion of, I don't know how common this is, was that I was actually having empathy dreams through through the act of of sex or some form of sex mm -hmm. with people mm -hmm. um and i realized that the the dreams i was having about people were uh specifically about people that i felt i didn't understand well and wasn't and wasn't helping in their lives the way that i the, the way that i should or the way that mm -hmm. i felt i should so that was kind of yeah that is so funny that you say sex with your dad i think that's it's, um, you know, I guess people are constantly sharing that innermost thoughts these days, but you see things like social media and there's a real filter over it, really. Right. I always think, you know, um, if you're familiar with your dream life, the weirdest, most perverse stuff happens. And it's what most people, what goes on in most people's unconscious minds, really. And you, you look at things like... Um, ancient stories in Egypt and things like that. And there's a, a massive element of sexuality and um, I suppose uh, sexual emphasis on quite a lot of the creation myths and on the battle scenes. There's a lot of sex being an aspect of dominance or mm. empathy or, um, uh, or sort of intellectual, spiritual, emotional intimacy. So mm. I think that, because we're in this, we're now in this culture of like sharing our supposed innermost thoughts when we're never really. And actually the ancients, yeah. when you start reading ancient Egyptian mythology, there's some really like pretty um, graphic stuff in there. Amazing. So yeah, I, I, I fully agree or fully kind of relate to the frustration of, of it feeling yeah, it does feel like supposedly it's this very, uh, well, you can go on Facebook and get the impression that it's a very vulnerable place or that, you know, that it's like people reaching out in times of, of stress, but uh, uh, it, it does feel very curated in a way, in, in a way that the, the subconscious is 
completely uncurated, right? And and yeah. uh, and the dream the dream state is probably our most uh, our most visceral connection to the to the subconscious. Um, in terms of oh, I had a thought about the sex thing. Like oh, um, I guess yeah, sex has always been a a, a massive um, kind of human motivator or human drive, and and it does feel kind of like this. Um, almost this other being sometimes in us, but it's also, uh, it's also about connection. Um, and like, you know, a connection in a very kind of mystical, mysterious way. And, uh, I've heard you say that, um, that in the ancient times there was less, um, there was less individual identity, individuated identity in people. Mm-hmm. Um, less ego, I think. Less um, ego. Yeah. I think, I'm interested in the um, the psychologist Julian Jaynes and his ideas about the bicameral mind Mm. and um, whether or not you agree with Julian Jaynes because his theories are, you know, a little bit out of date now. Most people, most neuroscientists I know certainly think it's um, Mm. not true, but it would make sense to me that, you know, our consciousness has evolved as a species um, along the lines of what we've been doing culturally and habitually and our tasks and actions and our requirements culturally and socially you know um Mm. human beings used to spend time in total darkness you know they didn't have artificial light that when they started to build fires they could then see for longer periods in the day um and our consciousness changes radically Mm. and our experience of reality changes radically according to what activities we're doing and what our mm. priorities are and whether we're settled or nomadic or we're hunter gatherers or farmers. And, um, you know, I was just reading the other day about, uh, various mental health conditions that parallel certain, um, developments in civilization or invention. So for example, there was, um, a condition where people believed they were made of glass when glass was invented for the first time and it was such an amazing miraculous thing that people saw this and they thought it was a kind of form of magic and started to believe themselves made of glass and as people became familiar with the the experience and seeing glass they familiarize themselves with it and that symptom or that um, experience seems to have dissipated Hmm. that's very interesting um Wow. Uh, so, so when people in the ancient, okay, so sorry, uh, uh, several thoughts. Wow. This is so cool. Um, how, how do you define the term ego? You said we don't have ego as much. I think that it's the absolute, the sort of sense of self really mm-hmm. like of being, uh, an individual not connected to other human beings. Like the, we've become increasingly ego driven and a a lot of that I think ties into our concepts of time and I believe ancient Mm. people had a more cyclical experience of time um, and based their experiences and their life cycle much more closely fitting into nature seeing the sort of cycle of life death um, Mm. uh, disintegration and rebirth and also looking at oops okay sorry it froze up there for a second uh let's see if we get you back oops hmm sorry hmm 
Oh dear. Oh, sorry. Okay, I can hear you again. I'm not sure what's going on. Sorry about that. Cycles. Um, you were talking about cycles of death and rebirth. Yeah, I think that um, human beings were perhaps more, well, A, they would have been more, more familiar with death as, a, as an experience in their daily life. But also they had a closer relationship to nature. So they, they saw that, um, you know, the, the cycles that uh, nature experiences of life, death, disintegration and regeneration um, they mm. saw that as being their human experience as well. So I think that's where all these regenerative Osiris rising from the dead, mm-hmm. these kind of myths start with this idea of observing nature and then putting a kind of human face on it. Mm. And so um, it, it would seem you're kind of implying or saying that um, certain technologies uh, have actually contributed to um, contributed to our disconnection from these cycles from the natural world, like things like artificial light. Um, I'd almost want to throw in there the idea that even written language itself, like oh, language. I think that's the most important technology is written language, well, spoken language, written language, and even art like cave paintings. Mm. Um, they create, they kind of create this, extra layer of reality of representational reality and then when you've you've kind of created this um uh you you kind of manifest an aspect of the drawn or the written thing every time you write the name or you draw a picture of something and you know people believe Mm -hmm. that cave paintings served this magical purpose of manifesting for example um an animal that hunters could go and kill it was kind of an an idea of kind of uh, Mm. consciously creating um the desired target and in ancient Egyptian language development, that was an aspect of it as well. The hieroglyphs were magical, you know, they were seen to manifest Mm. the elements that they described, but language, you know, from the sort of pictographic languages that were like pure representations of things. We then went into this sort of more abstract, a phonetic value type language system, which means that things are represented with sounds that don't necessarily have anything to do with the thing itself. And just like nowadays, I think things like social media and technology are meaning that our memory faculties and our consciousness is almost like outsourced or projected into the universe in a Mm -hmm. different kind of technological way. Mm. Um, I think ancient people used writing and speaking in, in a similar sort of way. It was a, it was mm. a, an extra layer of um, cultural development that I suppose led to the brain working in a particular way and therefore our interpretation of reality could be seen, could be perceived to be slightly different. Because I think if you're thinking of things in terms of what they're called and calling mm calling things the thing you know the name that you've chosen to given it 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 makes life much more complex Mm. and so and also language gave people the uh um the ability to to feel that they were interpreting um life in the same way like it it gives it has a standardizing yes standardizing thing and like i imagine i'm just imagining being in ancient egypt and kind of the collective memory can remember a time before written language. And so just like glass, uh, just, just like the invention of glass, like a written language would, would 
would give people the feeling that, um, that there was this magical quality to language still. And, um, and that there was, yeah, like this manifesting, like I would say in, in the, in the current time with our modernist kind of, uh, epistemology or whatever you want to say, uh, it, it feels like there's less and less of that language, um, language having any kind of magical power. Um, so I guess I'm kind of wondering, um, one of the things that I, I really like about you and what you, you're doing is that you're part of this, um, you're part of, um, it's, it's probably not an, an official movement of, of any kind, but I'm noticing more and more people that I'm finding online who are not necessarily distinctly and harshly dividing um, science and spirituality and, um, you know, aren't necessarily just completely rejecting spiritual practice or, or religion or whatever, but are kind of including it all in kind of a human consciousness stew. Um, and so there seem, there does seem to be a spiritual element to, to what you're studying. Would that yeah. be accurate? Would that be accurate to say? Yeah. I was thinking today actually about, uh, the coronavirus and all the, um, conspiracy theories uh, mm. surrounding coronavirus. And I think they really stem from the fact that the powers that be do not operate a kind of joined up long-term thinking in general. So it looks like a conspiracy afterwards because all of these actions have terrible consequences because we're no longer thinking in terms of the interconnectedness of everything and the relationships of ourselves to the natural world, which we need to look at in order to run a kind of healthy and holistic society. So I think things like that can end up looking like um, it's all part of a plot and a plan. Mm. But I think in general, um, the modern way of looking at things is very um, uh, reductionist to its detriment, you know. Even physical suffering and death are kind of portrayed as being these external things, these kind of, these, mm -hmm. these forces that are not natural or something like that. Not that I'm saying COVID-19 is natural, but I mean, you could say that it is a conspiracy in that, you know, people n neglect, uh, to, to care for each other in the way that would stop these things from happening. Anyway, I don't mm. want to get, I don't want to go down the COVID-19 or whatever's natural to the conversation. I, I'm not, I, I'm not actually, I don't have a lot of expertise in that, but uh, um, it does really highlight, it, it does really, everyone is currently stopping and thinking, um, you know, about, about themselves, about society, the way it is. And, and I kind of do hope it leads to people, uh, people returning to, to themselves or to their spirit and just needing, needing the kind of thing that you, that you provide with, uh, with the way that you guide people in dreams and sleep. Um, well, so, actually I, I have noticed a lot of people posting about their sleep and their dreams since yeah. coronavirus it might be one of the most wonderful things that come out of it because people aren't having to set their alarm and wake up at the crack of dawn, which is usually what, destroys people's uh, dream lives. Mm. And um, another issue I think is, you know, I think a lot of people are turning away from social media because it's very anxiety causing. And mm. the, the blue light that you receive from devices for one thing, but also the sort of stimulation and the anxiety that social media in particular causes 
Um, I think people are recognizing that it's detrimental to their health being stuck indoors all day. Mm. They don't really want to do that. So, I mean, one thing I've been doing is just going for really long walks every day and Mm. really enjoying nature. So I hope that one thing that comes out of this at least is that people will value sleeping and dreaming again, because just to have that little reminder that dreaming is there and available to you whenever you want it. And it's the ultimate like liberty and freedom um, is, is a great reminder to have in this sort of a situation. Yeah. So, um, it, it is, um, so that brings us to dreams and sleep, which, uh, obviously is, I want to talk to you about, um, my particular story. And I wonder how common this is, is that I find that, um, with the exception of the occasional extremely meaningful dream uh, or, or the occasional uh, messed up sex dream, um, I, I don't find that I have a, a, a super active or I don't remember my dream life very much. And um, I even feel like based on my spirituality, uh, the spirituality of my past, which actually uh, I'm increasingly not defining as spirituality. I came up in uh, evangelical Christianity, and uh, I think it, that I mean it. It can. There are some really wonderful people there, but it, it can also be very, very ass backwards when it comes to spirituality. Like it's it's hard to even categorize as a spiritual movement at times. And uh, I, I would I have found that I would go to sleep begging God to come to me in a dream because mm-hmm. I, I so wanted a spiritual uh, experience that was meaningful and guiding to my life. Um, something to tell me what the next step should be, something to get me in touch with myself, all these things. And I, I, in my head, it had to be, it had to be a, an obviously God dream. Like this is kind of how I was conditioned. It had to be God speaking. Um, to me in some way that I knew was God and I knew wasn't me and wasn't my own subconscious. So do you find that people have, that there are people who um, have a very banal or non-existent dream life um, that, that talk, do you talk to people like that often? Yeah. Lots of people come to my workshops that have really boring dreams, uh, dreams that they're at work all day and have done like a whole day of work in Mm. their dream, which, Um, and then there's a lot of anxiety dreams as well and then more people than ever saying they don't remember anything about their dreams at all oh so that's on the rise amazing dreams when i was a kid and just nothing now Hmm. are you you're finding the number of those people it seems to be increasing interesting um and, and I think that's part of it kind of runs parallel with this in this reigniting interest in psychedelics as well, because I think often kids that as kids, they've had great dreams, but they've lost that ability. And so they get into psychedelics because psychedelics right. offer a real kind of waking dream experience often, I think. Um, yeah. And if you don't have easy access to dreaming, uh, dreaming, you know, it takes some boring stuff sometimes to get really good at dreaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's easier in a way to open that door with psychedelics. And I, and I think as well, I've not taken psychedelics, but from my friends mm-hmm. that take psychedelics a lot, and I've had a lot of lecturers about psychedelics at my club, mm-hmm. I think sometimes it can be like that door opening experience whereby you just remember how to do it again, you know, potentially uh, with lucid dreaming. 
So people who take psychedelics sometimes experience a re a regrowth of their of their childhood dreaming, even when they're yeah. not taking the psychedelics. Yeah, I think it's it's just um, you know you often find that with lucid dreaming, if you hadn't had a lucid dream for ages, um, and then you have one, just having one. And it being like, wow, I've had a lucid dream again, makes you more likely to have more following mm. on from that. Interesting. Um, so, uh, it, but psychedelics seem to be a thing, like I, from what I've heard, that it still takes a lot of care. You, you still, just like, just like what, whatever processes you use, it, it needs to be very intentional. You can't just sort of jump into it. Although that's the best, yeah, it's the best way to do it. And yeah. um, also I think the integration aspect of it's important. And I never really thought, because I've always lucid dreamed since I was a kid, mm. I never really thought about an integration aspect to lucid dreaming actually. But I think that's also true that you do need to integrate dreams because often you will have um recurring motifs like i was talking about or recurring stories that if you don't really sit down and think about what they mean you kind of continually have them and um mm. sometimes i've even had like really amazing recurring stories that i've never really thought about what they've mean what they've meant i've just enjoyed them mm. and then when i thought about oh that means that they stop and I'm gutted. Uh, actually, I was <laughs> going to ask that. Yeah, early because you were talking about uh, nightmares, but I w I immediately thought, what about good dreams that you like? And so you had that happen. Interesting. Sorry, yeah. I cut you off there, though. No, no, that's fine. Um, so I mean, I think it's really cool and telling that you have people come who have um, boring dreams uh, to try and reignite their dream life because it seems to imply that people know on some level that it's important. You know, yeah, that's clearly that's very important. And there are there are lots of aspects with what's going on in the world at the moment that are affecting dreams so much as well. Because when I was a kid, everyone talked about their dreams all the time. My mum and dad talk about their dreams all the time. I actually think there's a generation where they've kind of missed dreaming because they've been on devices since mm. teenagehood. And mm. especially with young children these days being on devices almost immediately. I think there's an element to it of... Um, uh, the way you actually look at stuff. And when I was a kid, we didn't have devices. There weren't really very many sort of stimulating visual things in the world mm. apart from nature mm. and uh, reading books and using your imagination. So I spent quite a lot of time just staring into space or I used to do a thing where I'd like press my palms into I my eye sockets. Yeah. Or like look at stuff really close up or my, when my nan was smoking a fag, I used to watch the smoke and I just kind of think kids don't do stuff like that really yeah. anymore. You know, it's like a minute of boredom and mm -hmm. then they'll find something to do. And we can watch, you know, we watched a bit of TV, but there wasn't that much TV to watch. Mm. So you're constantly, um, looking at something rather than looking inwards. And I've noticed myself that um, I think there's a certain um, style of seeing that you have when you're in a dream state, which we don't exercise during the day as much as we did before all of these devices were ever present. And I think it's a kind of soft gaze that you have that mm. if you don't do enough during a day, um, you kind of lose the ability to do it. I think it might even be a kind of uh, way of seeing that could have atrophied already in people because it's mm. quite a habit-based thing. Mm. So um, the example I give to people when they come to my workshops is, you, do you remember those uh, magic eye pictures? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where you can look at a magic eye picture, you sort of look through it 
rather than at the flat surface. And I think we've become mm. almost too accustomed to looking at a screen or a surface yeah. so that we're not looking through things anymore. And I would also relate right. it to something like the obsidian mirrors of the Mayans or, you know, gazing at your reflection in a pond, something like that, mm. that kind of scrying way of looking at stuff. When you look through a surface and images seem to kind of bubble up from the depths of that abyss Interesting. Yeah, I, I have noticed even with my own children that uh, that some of the things, so, like they, they do seem to have that kind of intuitive, um, less specific uh, way of looking at things. Like they'll, yeah. see, they'll see a scene and then my sense of priority tells me immediately, uh, you know, prioritizes things. And, and they just take in a totality in such an interesting way. And sometimes we'll even mimic back something that seems surprisingly sophisticated that they've seen because they've looked in this more general way. And uh, actually, that's that, I mean, what you're describing, that kind of soft gaze is, in my opinion, um, is a picture of of what spirituality or uh, of what leads people into spirituality itself, not just into dreams. But when I think like as human beings and forgive me, <laughs> it, when I talk to people, I just, you're giving me thoughts. I don't have questions written down. So I'm just sort of having thoughts on the fly. Uh, but um, I feel like we're abstracting creatures where, um, there's almost nothing we might see as a repeating pattern that our brain doesn't in some way abstract up or abstract down to larger degrees, larger levels of, um, of resolution. Um, you know, and, and it tends to go that way. I mean, we do think, we do think down into the smallness and we think up into the bigness, but I think that's where, that's where these gods and, and spirits come from is that you see, in life and in people, uh, repeated themes that no one is, that no one is perfectly embodying. No one is, no one is living, you know, permanently in that space, but you catch little glimpses of it. And then in your mind, you've created these larger, um, mm. larger motifs that extend up all the way to God or what, or whatever. Does that? Well, we're missing those kind of mythological archetypes in our world nowadays, mm. you know, unless we're a, a strict follower of a spiritual dogma of some sort where there are those archetypes and you believe in them. For the most part, most people are materialistic and they believe in material, the material world. Mm. And often what dominates in the experiences of dreams are, uh, symbolic things and mythological things mm. and it the dreams tell stories in really interesting ways and they use everything that's at that at its disposal it's really an amazing thing and i think language plays a huge part in dreaming actually because mm. language is a tool and um dreaming tends to express itself in symbols but often those symbols are attached to a language value and that language value plays back into what the meaning is perhaps even more so than the symbol itself like sometimes there's uh, puns and wordplay in dreams often that unless you write them down you don't get the meaning of them and it's only when you see the written word laid out that you're like oh that's that's a kind of composite of these two other things oh interesting um I had an experience the other day that uh, as you're talking, it's kind of, it's revealing itself as kind of a, 
accidentally dreamlike situation where my daughter um, asked me to tell her a story and I was going to get a book and she said, no, uh, tell me one out of your head. Uh, she's four. And uh, so I, I kind of like, to be perfectly honest, I was like, oh shit, you know, like uh, I, I'm not going to be able to come up with a good story. But for some reason, uh, I got this, I came up with this story about uh, a frog uh, and he had been a king and got turned into a frog and he lived, uh, lived out on a, on a lily pad, but he didn't like the food. Um, he didn't like the food. He didn't like the taste of flies. He wanted He wanted food again from his old table. So he went back into his, um, castle and snuck around and got onto a plate and was underneath one of those silver dome things. Anyway, I told this story and it was actually a pretty good story. She liked it. And it wasn't until, so the next day she said, tell me a story again. And I was like, all right. So I started to do something totally different. She was like, no, tell the frog story again. So I was like, all right. So I told the frog story again, the best I could remember it. And then it just like hit me like a bolt of lightning. It was my story. I told my story in an entirely mythological way. I described, mm -hmm. I described my, uh, basically my psychological and spiritual life. And the food was, um, like beliefs and meaning and, uh, and, and relevance. And every part of that story had a, a tie in with my life, which I'd never, I'd never experienced that. I mean, I'd never, I'd never noticed that. Um, so that's not a question, but it's just something that happens. And I wonder if you hear that kind of thing happening much. I think that's what stories do and that's what seem all dreams are really like that. I mean, you, people have kind of like junk dreams where they're like scrolling through Facebook or working or whatever, but when there are stories in dreams, there's usually something meaningful behind that because mm. you've constructed this narrative. But I think it's so true of stories and you telling that story about the frog actually really, because I've, I have got a good memory and I think memory is really the kind of essence of what dreaming is and the better your memory for the variety of experiences that you've had in life or just remembering the stuff that's happened to you, the more likely you are to be able to unlock the secrets of your dreaming, I think. And um, when you were telling that story, it reminded me that because my mum and dad were really great at reading me stories when I was a kid. And I wonder whether that was something that made me have good dreams because, mm. you know, I'm sure um, your child was visualizing all of those things you were telling them. And, you know, I did that all the time. Mm. And um, the, one of the stories that my dad used to tell me, and I don't think he read as much to me as my mom was the frog prince. Mm. And um, I remember so many details from that book where there were certain things in it. And like you say about the way kids remember the details and they don't necessarily focus in on stuff. The thing that I focused in on or the thing that I really liked about the, the frog prince was the golden ball that the princess was playing with. I was always like fascinated that she had a gold ball. I thought that was amazing. And so I really visualized that and I really imagined it and it gave me lots of pleasure to kind of create it in my mind. And, um, and what you kind of realize as well when, as you get older is that actually if you look back on it, certain stories almost become your life. It's like it's a two-way mm -hmm. um, deal, really. You hear a story and you will fit the meaning according to your experiences. And there's almost no story that you couldn't fit into your life in mm. some way, shape, or form because these, um, these architects, 
archetypes and events and symbols uh, there's kind of like everything is within everything so mm. you can uh especially those super archetypal symbolic stories, they fit almost any situation. And mm -hmm. so they're really useful. They're like the skeleton of reality. You know, you can kind of build your uh, human model over the top of the skeleton of any story. Mm. And, you know, you take the frog prints, you can talk about your life according to the frog prints, or you could, you know, you can take anything really. And, and, um, that can become your story and you choose what narrative you want really. And I think when I was a kid, I loved Alice in Wonderland and Alice in Wonderland. It was like, I think that is when I got so into dreams because it was all about dreams. And so many of my dreams will be related to Alice in Wonderland even now. So I think I laid down the foundation when I was very young of my, uh, my sort of taste and my aesthetic was laid down at a very early age that even now I can see that aesthetically, I can tell like my dreams have an a certain aesthetic and I would know them if I watched them on a TV program. Right. And then every now and again, I mean, it's something I talk about sometimes at workshops is like dream telepathy or like when you share a bed with a partner, sometimes your dreams have a totally different quality because there is something about um, sharing space and the mm. influence of somebody else's consciousness in your your sphere, like you're picking up on it, sensory information is coming into you all the time. You're hearing mm. them snore or they're moving around or they're making you hot and all of those things. And you're consciously, you're aware to some degree that there's yeah. somebody else there and it affects the things that you dream about. Yeah, that's interesting. And that makes perfect sense to me. I never thought of it, but I, I'm so like, I'm a very social person and I'm very affected by um, the presence of other people. In fact, one of my struggles when I was younger was uh, feeling like I, feeling dishonest because I became such a different person around different people. I was kind of activated by the energy that they would give me. Or if I was alone all day, I would literally feel like I was no one. <laughs> uh, so that, I mean, that, that makes sense. And we're so connected. I kind of like how the picture that you're, you're painting here is blurring or crossing lines between waking life, uh, dreaming life, uh, you know, memory, like it, and, and other people. And, and it's kind of, it does kind of have, uh, I feel kind of your worldview or whatever you want to call it has kind of a unifying, uh, effect where, um, missing in our understanding of dreams now is, uh, the memory dimension of dreams, even scientifically. I think mm. there's, I think there's a, um, a, uh, evolutionarily speaking an older form of memory in the dream state than the mm. contemporary experience of memory that we have these days. And mm. when we're dreaming, we tap into that somehow. And, um, you know, I have dreams quite often where I'm in the dream state. And that's the thing with being lucid is you remember that you're you and you like wake up in your dream and it's about remembering who you are and where you are and being like fully mm. present in that moment and that's why it feels so amazing and you know one of the reasons why i thought lucid dreaming was so important when i was a kid was because i thought that i could transcend death and i would know where i was going to be reborn um and i wanted to film it because i wanted to be a filmmaker but there was something about i always recognized there was something about remembering who you are when you're mm. dreaming like you wake up and you come out of it and it is it's a bit of a kind of matrix moment of realizing that there's a um a continuity of consciousness if you 
get into regular lucidity where you feel like there's no there's no line really between wakefulness and sleeping hmm. well I, w- w- what's so interesting about what you're saying is uh well there's many things that are interesting about what you're saying but what comes to my mind right now is that on the one hand with the ancient culture we talk about you were talking about um there being far less ego, far less um, individuated self in conscious life. But then also lucid dreaming is about a feeling of return in, into your self. In other words, there's some, there is some reality to self that mm. you can experience in waking life and you can experience in dreaming life. Um, so are we talking about kind of a, like is one of the things that's so, um, um, compelling and visceral about it, the the feeling that you're returning to a true self, or you're coming into a true it does self. Feel like it does feel like a full body consciousness experience, rather mm. than um, an intellectual type of consciousness experience. Of, right. You know, I often ask people like where they think they are in their bodies. You know, and where do you identify? Most people feel like they're behind their eyes. Right. And what you have in uh, a lucid dream when you have a moment of uh, conscious awareness is beyond a full body experience. You're conscious and aware of the fact that you are everything in that world. Uh, you know? Yeah, because in because in some to some degree, anyway, you're creating. You are creating that whole world. Um, yeah, I mean that's one of the things I I get people to think about actually because people often want to fly in lucid dreams. And what I kind of realised because um, when I started really because I always lucid dream when I was a kid and I, but I used it mainly for wish fulfillment. So I'd be like, I want to go here. I want to snog this boy in my class. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want these cool presents. And, uh, what happened with me is I've got a 12 year old daughter now, but when she was born, I'd always had absolutely amazing sleep, never had any problems with sleeping at all. And then obviously having a baby, like you just don't sleep very much. And it was, it was, weird for me to experience that Mm. and so I made sure after you know she'd grown up a little bit that got back into dreaming because I realized what a hugely life enriching experience it is Mm. and I couldn't I didn't feel like myself without it I didn't feel Mm. as intelligent I didn't feel um as happy I didn't feel I I have like a, a good sense of humor and like I don't take things very seriously and I think I have a sort of big picture view of the world and I'd lost that. I felt joyless basically. Mm. So I was like, I've got to get back into it. And when I did, I got back into it with a, with a vengeance and I was so grateful and so happy rather than the wish fulfillment stuff. It was much more about, um, you know, I suppose evolving myself to become a better version of myself. And, Mm. um, and I realized you can use it for that aim. You can become, uh, more aware of yourself, more mm. aware of your foibles and your um, your issues or your blockages, and you can you can grow from the dreaming experience. So mm. I used it more along those lines. And um, what I also started to do though was when I was in the lucid state, was just observe the lucid state and work out what it looked like because you have like crystal clear vision in lucidity where Mm. you can also see like close up and far away at the same time. It's like almost like an omnipotent experience Mm. Mm -hmm. and um, really analyzing what it is that's happening. And um, you know, when I would have experiences like remembering stuff, follow that path a bit further Mm. than maybe I, I followed it before. So 
you get to a point where you feel like you could almost be overwhelmed with how wide open your mind is to the limitless amount of information that seems to come in. You know, like it's so, you, you feel like you could remember past lives and everything that's happening in the universe. Like it's, it feels really incredible. And I think that, you know, our, our critical thinking and our, our modern idea of consciousness is a, an effective filter to help us work in the modern world. And actually, I think that that has developed over a period of time. And the ancient people experienced a state of consciousness that may have been more like our waking reality and dreaming overlapped. Because mm-hmm. the faith the the uh, or I, I don't even want to call it faith but the belief that they had in in the non-physical world was so was so total mm. that uh yeah that that would be interesting um so what are what are some ways i guess that you've found in in modern life things you can change in your waking life that can help get back to that way of seeing that will then help your dreams Um, One of the things that I find works really well, and it's really simple, is reading novels before you go to bed. Mm. Uh, And especially magical realism novels, because Mm. they have a particular kind of uh, very vivid, um, imaginative way about them. And they're very easy images to conjure up, because they're often quite primal and Mm. um, strong archetypal characters and scenarios. So Mm. magical realism novels, for one, Hmm. Um, and then writing things down. I mean, it's, it's the most common one, but keeping a record of your dream experiences Hmm. is really, really, um, really, really key. And what does happen because I mean, I, that's the people that's, that's the thing that people seem to struggle with the most, even though it's the easiest and free thing to do, but it's, uh, it really works. And I think it, part of the reason why it works is this aspect of the way that dream memory functions as well. So, you know, like when you wake up from a dream, you'll often be like, Oh, unless it's about having sex with your dad. And then you'll be like, don't remember, don't remember. Oh God, I remember. (laughs) So, um, when you wake up from a dream, you tend to be like, um, Oh, I'll remember that. So I don't need to write it down and then you Mm. will forget or, you know, what I often do is write things down while it's still dark and not really moving very much. And then I work backwards from the last thing I remember. And then it's like everything else fills Mm. in. It's a very different memory process to our, our waking memory, um, function. So, uh, writing things down when you do that, you also go through this process of remembering everything that's happened. Mm. And almost in that process, you commit the dream experience to your conscious memory as well. Mm. So it's this double process. And then what I find happens is the more you write things down, the more imaginative material you have, and then that generates more dream content. So mm. it really works and it's really effective. There are, th- there are a lot of nutritional supplements and some of them I find can be quite effective. Mm. Um, uh, vitamin B is really good for dreaming or L-theanine and uh, uh, Hoopazine A. Mm. And I've tried, I've tried, what's the one that's... Um, uh, really supposed to be effective but i can't say i know it's much of a difference on that uh it's the one that comes from snowdrop bulbs 
Oh, um, I don't know. Galantamine. Galantamine. So oh, okay. I tried Galantamine, but I didn't really notice any effects of that. But other people have told me that it works really well for them. And then I'm, I make like dream potions and stuff. I make my own herbal tea. Mixture. Yeah, I've seen that. You sell, you sell some of that stuff on yeah. your website. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so would you say that dreaming, like, um, I'm forming a picture of dreaming, but I'm also forming a picture of, of, uh, your thought life, um, and uh, based on even even the things you're not talking about, like I notice you're not you're not quick to use the term spirituality or or God or or or, or things like that. Um, so, do you find that there are? So, two questions: um, is is dreaming kind of uh, sleep and dreaming kind of your principle? Um, I don't know what you would say, psychological practice for mental health. Um, and then also, do you find that there are others who, who get the same effect from other things besides dreaming? I think dreaming is an absolutely critical thing that human beings need to do to be sane. And um, I think we, we touched upon it earlier, but um, there's so many things like the kind of antidepressant crisis and uh, actually habitual cannabis smoking suppresses REM content as well. Mm. And so we end up often socially with a lot of people that are stuck because they're not processing the emotional experiences that need to process because they've suppressed REM sleep. And I've spoken to a lot of people, a lot of people come that smoke a lot of weed and, um, mm they've told me that they smoke so much weed because they don't want to have dreams. They don't want to remember their dreams, but then that points to really the fact that they probably should be paying attention to their dreams right. and resolve some of their issues that way. And then uh, the way antidepressants work, one of the things that it does, it suppresses REM sleep. So mm -hmm. they really should only be used for a short term period because they, they help you to fall asleep without, because obviously if you're suffering from high anxiety or depression, you often have trouble having a healthy sleep cycle. Um, so they help you have uh, deep sleep, but it suppresses REM sleep. So then again, mm. you're not resolving some of the issues that you need to resolve right. in your dreams. And uh, therefore you can end up stuck in a rut for a, quite a long time. Mm. Even they say with ayahuasca ceremonies that it's a, it's a sort of a work. There's a, a there's a work through, through some negative things that has to happen uh, at the yeah. beginning of it before it, I mean, it, well, not necessarily before it's a transformative experience because often it's a transformative experience immediately afterwards. So are you finding when people have these, um, maybe they've been suppressing their dreams uh, and you get them on a more natural um, path and sleep, uh, sleep cycle and sleep health. Um, do they have uh, a kind of glut of, bad dreams do, that come right away yeah you do get like a glut of dreams if you give up those substances and um it's like a well-known effect especially with um, smoking cannabis where you get mm. like a um really intense dreams when you give up and then it tends to stabilize after a while okay. and um sometimes it can be great it depends doesn't it because you know i meet people in life and i can tell they're suppressing and bottling up a lot of stuff so it's going to come up in their unconscious mind and then i think if you're generally an open and an honest person that accepts the reality of who you are because that's often a big issue um with what comes up in your dream life is are you honest about who you really are? And one of the things I've noticed is um, 
the representation of self in dreams is really important and relevant. Mm. Is it like a good version of yourself or is it a horrible version of yourself or is it a deluded, idealized version of yourself? You know, there's mm. a lot of, a lot of those kind of issues that come up in dreaming. Um, do you, are you a fan of any particular kind of, uh, personal work outside of, of, of sleep, like, uh, any kind of like, do you know the Enneagram or any of that kind of personality, uh, like self learning kind of systems? I do find those quite interesting. And I think, um, well, there was one that I did quite recently. I can't remember what it was called now, but it was, uh, it was that sort of thing when you, you look at your personality, but I sort of think you, you can become whatever personality you want, really. Personality is a little bit of an illusion. You mm -hmm. can, you know, it's a habit. Personality is kind of like a habit. Mm -hmm. And depending on what your thoughts are and what your belief system is about who you are, then you'll perpetuate that character. But, you know, that's mm -hmm. why I think uh, actors can have personality disorders quite often because they slip mm -hmm. into different characters. And mm -hmm. I can imagine it'd be quite hard sometimes if you're doing that really frequently to know which, if you're any of them, Right. Yeah. Personality is such an interesting, uh, an interesting thing like the, the self, because I think, uh, I, I do, I personally do believe that there is a self and that I have, that there is a me and, and all that. But, uh, yeah, you're right. Personality is often what we've grafted on, uh, to ourselves and what we've been told in, you know, by authority figures in our lives that we are, or should be, should be is the big one. Um, and, uh, and it can be so kind of, uh, I don't know. Well, self-acceptance and self-forgiveness can be such a, a huge thing. I, I recently got into, uh, the Enneagram, which is a, a personality test with nine types. Um, and it, it's kind of cool. Um, it, it's kind of more open where you can kind of, you can kind of read everything and kind of find where you fit, but it's about your motivations and that kind of thing and self-acceptance. And it does help. Um, it, it, it does help. That would be interesting. I guess I'm, I guess I'm thinking about, uh, about who, who I am in my dreams. And, uh, I think it does tie in with what I've kind of identified as some of my personality, which is that I'm almost nothing like in the dream. Like I'm not a, I'm not an, a, a powerful figure and I'm not a, a, I'm not a purely fearful figure. I'm almost like an objective observer mm -hmm. in my dreams. Mm -hmm. And I think I've only lucid dreamed once I could and it was specifically flying around because that was what I wanted to do but for the most part yeah like um I, I've experienced kind of in some ways the opposite of what you're saying in dreams where um uh or, or the opposite of lucid dreams where you're saying you can you kind of have this total view where you're seeing everything uh and you can zoom around and all that I, I, my dreams tend to be very limited perspective where I'm in a room and there's a doorway and then uh, maybe that changes, but I don't know it's changing. And then I see that all of a sudden there's an indoor swimming pool in my childhood home or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of going through the dream in this very like, uh, uh, kind of reaching in the dark kind of way. Um, mm -hmm. but with some knowledge of like, I know this is my house, but it's not any house I've ever lived in. Like some kind of knowledge of the story, like the director well, has like told saying about the sex dream and everything as well. And you waking up and not thinking it was like a big emotional deal to you. There is a sort of certain right. disassociation. I get that as well, where mm. 
awful things can happen or really weird stuff happens, but you don't have the same emotional attachment necessarily to it. Yeah. And then other things that can seem quite inconsequential can have huge emotional attachment towards them. Or you can like mm. be crying in your dream or laughing in your dream over something that isn't funny or isn't sad. So, mm. um, it, I think it's almost like a synesthetic experience, primarily expressed kind of visually. Mm. And uh, some of the stuff I've read about what's happening in your body when you, you um, sleep. Because one of the things I think is amazing and people don't really think about enough is the fact that you're able to see this amazing stuff with your eyes closed. You've got no um, sensory input coming in through your eyes at all, but you're able to generate incredible visual experiences. Um, mm. And what happens um, in the body during these processes is that your um, uh, the visual generating aspects of your brain or the visual part of your brain is using sensory input and interpreting it in visual content. So that's why you'll mm. have dreams that uh, may relate to physical aspects of your body because you're creating visual representations, which may not be accurate. They may not look like uh, the parts of your body, but they relate somehow symbolically. Like mm. some of the Greek philosophers believed that you could find out about the state of a human body depending on the geographic landscape that was in the dream or the... Oh. Oh. Sorry, you've frozen up again a little bit. Uh, let me just wait a minute. Do, do, do. I'm hoping it comes back. Uh, I'm so sorry. Okay. So it's back now. Uh, uh, so you were saying you can tell about the physical state, um, by the, um, by the, the yeah, and the and the state of them, like if they're dry or if they're, uh, you know, burning forests or things like that. I mean, not necessarily in all instances, but I think there's elements of that that are very mm. true. Things like um, female menstrual cycles and stuff like that. Often you mm. have dreams where you you may be underwater and you may be seeing um, jellyfish or something, and it, it's kind of representing processes that are happening within the body using uh, visual content of uh, the re the outside world, basically. But, I mean, that's something that's really important to me with regards to my research is I believe that uh, lucid dreaming in particular and conscious dreaming, setting intentions, has the potential to um, be a very healing process for people because mm. I think lucid offers a potential for a true integration of mind and body. So with the right intention mm. and the right understanding, you could potentially heal yourself from something in a kind of faith healing type of response in a lucid mm. dream state. You've got the um, elements of that right. Well, I can certainly see how um, your, everything in your, in your dream could be uh, representational of, of some deeper, uh, you know, some deeper thought or assumption that you have. And if you have power over those, it, it might kind of be a way to, to take hold of your, of your assumptions and your, and some of your basic uh, beliefs that it, in waking life are, are barred to you. And now are you kind of saying though, that there's, you can also kind of experience healing on a physical level from that? Yeah, I think so. And uh, one of the markers for me with lucid dreaming is a bodily experience of bliss and joy, like mm. almost orgasmic experience of mm. like absolute like joy flooding from my body when I become lucid. And I believe that 
that state in itself can be a very powerful healing experience. Yeah. And one of my one of the guys that I do lucid dreaming workshops with, he was um, interestingly a child actor. He was in lots of uh, TV shows in the UK when he was a kid, mm. and he was constantly playing sick, dying children. And oh. um, he told me one day he was like. Uh, had his throat slit on a mirror for like eight hours during the shoot. And he eventually became really ill. And he, he kind of says that he thinks it's because he was playing these dying ill characters all the time. Mm. And um, got really, really ill with cancer. And uh, when he was having, I think, a final round of treatment, he had a dream where he was like Ghostbusters inside his own body shooting the cancer away. And he woke up and he just knew he was going to be all right from that experience and he felt mm. so much more confident and he had the experience of bliss and joy in his body and the treatment was effective mm. and um you know you can look at that any way you want it's an anecdotal experience yeah. but i think those kinds of healing dreams for people can be hugely meaningful powerful and effective mm. cool yeah so it's kind of it, it's kind of almost this idea that our that our self and our consciousness and our subconscious are distributed in our body and actually are receiving input and and sending out uh, instructions and signals to the rest of the of the body which it does make sense i mean it's mysterious right because you know that's scientifically a fact it's like we've got yeah. neurons in our heart right. we've got serotonin receptors in our gut this idea within neuroscience that we're like brains with other bits attached and just looking at the brain right. all the time to see what's happening is yeah. very weird to me. Like it yeah. feels to me like when you lucid dream, you have a full body experience and mm. the same occurs with psychedelic trips as well. You, the blood um, lessens in your brain and moves throughout the rest of your body. So perhaps something similar happens when you have those lucid moments hmm. where you're having more of a full body conscious experience and you do feel you do feel a different kind of presence um consciously when you're lucid i uh yeah i i, I feel like i'll hear people and, and sometimes very intelligent people say you're not your body uh, you know they'll comfort people by saying you're not your body and uh that always has seemed a little bit unfounded to me. Like, mm. uh, I, I believe that we ignore what, I mean, we ignore what we hear from our body to our peril and we ignore, or, or we disassociate from our body to our peril. I mean, and this is someone as I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, relatively self-conscious person. I didn't want people to see my feet when I was a kid. And, you know, I really mm. did. I, I, I was comforted sort of, what's the word? superficially by the idea that I'm not my body. So, um, mm. but, but as I got older, I thought, well, you know, I think we are dissociating in an unhealthy way, uh, mm. from, from our body and not just in terms of like people being unhealthy, um, but possibly even in some of the ma health mania that people have, uh, you know, it, anyway, yeah, sorry, too no. much on the body is probably just as bad, you know, like I, I right. often think, you know, we're, we're living in, I often see like kids, the way kids present themselves these days and especially girls, but I guess I just noticed that, um, more because I'm female, but I kind of think girls weren't like that when I was a kid, you know, they like yeah. girls were people that had ideas and weird hobbies and they had more 
there was much more emphasis on personality and interests mm. and hobbies than what you looked like aesthetically and what clothes you wore. Mm. And um, I think that it's dangerous to to be too much one way or the other. We're like a holistic system, you know. And mm. it's not just about it's not about necessarily being um, fit, but if you bring awareness into your body, then you're disinclined to become really out of shape because. Mm-hmm. It won't feel good. You, if you've got a, an awareness right. about your body, it won't feel great to be really unhealthy. Right. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I think it's possible that right now we have more emphasis on physical health than we do on on the health of of, of our sleep and and of our our mind and and I guess mental health is kind of uh, mental health is experiencing a, a, a growth of, of sort of people speaking, speaking about it and people, uh, the, the stigma is being lessened. Um, but it's still often being done in that extremely scientific way that mm. is very kind of a, uh, can be so one size fits all. So, um, I, I see what you're doing as, as this kind of, uh, uh, integrating, work, you know, in integrating our, ourselves with our, with our bodies and, and our minds, uh, the whole body element is, is kind of, is kind of new to me, like dreams affecting the body. Um, and it's it just, it's, it's really interesting. And it, it does seem very, um, I, my, my language can sometimes fail me, but it, it seems kind of spiritual. Um, and it seems kind of, uh, a part of something that I think is part of this, uh, of this podcast, which is, uh, an attempt to return, like you, what you're doing is kind of an attempt to return to, um, uh, a more mystical, um, m- mythological experience of life that perhaps, uh, religions and spiritual practices have kind of like, or maybe the, maybe it's the confluence of, of spiritual practices and religion that have never gone away with a kind of modernist thinking that to me feels like it's, it's dying. Um, Well, I think for me, a lot of it's about imagination and creativity. And, um, I believe in, uh, I believe in spirit and I believe in consciousness and I believe those are the factors that shape the natural world and that we should all be worshiping the natural world as a living, breathing, all powerful entity. And Mm. that probably we should return to some sort of form of earth worship because I Mm. think people need, or people, um, people respond to having something physical and tangible and spiritual to adore and worship and serve. I think that there's a usefulness in that and that um, the, uh, the early forms of religion that were about earth worship make a lot of sense, like valuing this planet that we live on and mythologizing it. And, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, like those early religions that worshipped the earth and they created those little Venus figurines mm. that when we started creating art and we started to create these characters and these models, we then created um, characters that could people and populate our dreams and we could create stories in our dreams and then would write those stories down. And I think dreams were probably one of the first things that were ever written down after accounting and, you know, counting sheep heads and stuff like that. Mm. So... 
I think it's vitally important and that dreams are really the best way to make contact with your higher self and make sense of the world. And I think ultimately that's what they're there for. They're there to make you uh, find your place within the universe. Mm. And the reason why a lot of us are so confused these days is there's just so much information and data out there that we're sort of bombarded and overwhelmed. Now, I always think about this... um, uh, I think it was a radio documentary that I heard once and it was talking about how the there were two passengers, two female passengers on the first ever steam train and they were so overwhelmed by the speed and the stimulus that they fainted. Mm. And you think we're still those human beings that fainted on the steam train because we haven't really caught up physically with the kind of technological advancements that mm. have, um, you know, like a steam train, gone off a thousand miles an hour like the technology has advanced enormously mm. and the human the human body hasn't changed that much and isn't that well adapted to technology so yeah. i think we're massively overstimulated as a, as a species and we should probably spend more time um reflecting being quiet using our imagination and cultivating a rich inner life and looking at our dreams. And, um, you know, the more time you spend in nature, the more in tune with nature you feel. And the oldest rituals of dream incubation involved lying directly on the earth to receive Mm. the wisdom of Gaia, the planet earth, to receive that knowledge. Mm. Well, that's beautiful. And it does kind of, it, it, it does kind of return or it, it makes a feeling that I've had is that um, we are, you know, a part of nature. I think that's, that's clear. And that there is like, since human beings um, and civilizations became uh, more and more powerful and, and maybe uh, more and more disconnected from the earth, we are tempted to make the, the top, um, we're tempted to emphasize the power and personality at the top in the same way that a, that a mighty nation might emphasize the power and personality at the top, forgetting that um, at the most basic and fundamental level, there's, some, there's, there's magic happening constantly that the cells are dividing and that um, there, the, the, you know, the, there is a growth of, of life. Uh, and, and, and there is a growth, there's growth that happens in all natural processes and that those things happen, but that the human being has the, um, the human being has the very specific, uh, ability to halt that growth and life, but in, especially in these non-physical parts of ourselves, or, or maybe they are physical, but we don't experience them physically as physical, you know, that things like our dreams, we have the ability to actually cut ourselves off from uh you know that plant-like growth that should be happening i, don't I think that's the thing is about um it's about having a direct experience of something and we've get, gotten further further and further away like the other day i found myself i can't remember where oh i know i was i was like enjoying the sunset somewhere and i was just thinking about taking a photograph and people think so much about taking photographs of stuff and it's become this way of almost never even seeing the thing, really engaging with the thing that you're supposed to be experiencing. I remember when, because I used to go on tour with a band a lot and one year (laughs) we went on tour and it was the first year that people almost watched the entire concert through their phones and didn't just 
enjoy the concert. It was so weird and it totally changed the atmosphere of the event. And I I remember um, when I was in Thailand, I think it was 2000, I didn't have a mobile phone and um, I climbed to the top of this mountain and I just had an experience on the top of this mountain and really enjoyed it. You know, we didn't used to think about um, having to prove we were anywhere all the time. I remember seeing something about uh, people were going on holiday just because it would look good on Instagram, (laughs) which is so weird, isn't it? But Uh. we've become like increasingly um, driven by the way others see us. Yeah. we're almost not having direct experiences. It's all about, um, you know, getting as many experiences as possible Mm. to show other people and not having those experiences deeply ourselves. But that's really the most important and connective and deep way of having any kind of relationship with the world. And yeah. And I find there's almost, uh, sometimes there, there's, there's almost, a it, (laughs) it's portrayed as narcissism to um, to kind of focus on your own experience or I don't know how this is kind of a vague thought in my head, but, but that uh, like, because what, what I'm, what I'm hearing you saying is that um, we need to, we need to choose what we do in our life based on um, based on a kind of that experiential, uh, you know, the, the, the glory of experience for ourselves and the, and the direct experience personally. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I think sometimes that has been that, well, that has been seriously devalued in, mm. in our world because it's like, Oh, that's just individual. That's just for you. And there's almost this feeling that, um, maybe, we, we should be sharing everything with everyone, but it's this weird thing where in sharing everything with everyone, we are not experiencing it. Then we're not getting the, uh, we're not getting the personal growth that we need to out of it. And then we're in, becoming increasingly avatars uh, of ourselves. Or I don't think anyone's like ever going to be on their deathbed saying, Oh, I wish I'd spent more time online. Oh, I wish I'd, you know, yeah my phone more no one yeah. is going to say that so yeah. i think but it's it's absolutely addictive you know mm-hmm. it's more addictive than almost anything so i think yeah. it's an important thing to become aware of and yeah. um spend time away from just yesterday i was skateboarding with my children and uh they're seven and four and I'm not sure why, but Delia wanted to have a rest. And so she sat down on the ground and then uh, my son sat down on the ground too. And then they decided to meditate. So they were sitting in the kind of, I mean, they were, they were mock meditating in a way, like doing the like ohm yeah. pose and they were right in the middle of the path. And my first instinct, and I did it, I took out my phone, I took a picture, isn't it cute? I came up with a funny hashtag, shreditation. And um, I... I put it to Instagram that minute. And even looking back now, just in the context of this conversation, I'm like, why didn't I sit down with them on the ground? <laughs> you know, why didn't yeah. I sit down with them on the ground and meditate? The moment could have gone on a lot longer. Daddy's not sitting there as a freaking zombie on my phone. Well, kids are, kids are much more in the moment. I think generally speaking, yeah, um, they are more, um, just 
within themselves they're not thinking about how they come across to other people which is why kids are so beautiful and lovely mm-hmm. um uh, yeah it's interesting i remember one of the lecturers that came to my talk was talking about uh this disconnect actually between parents and kids whether on their phones parents are on their phones so much and so they're not like looking at their children bonding really engaged in conversations they're not you know they're often called away by their phone or whatever but one of the things that he said was really interesting, it's totally off topic actually, but it was about women in Hollywood who've had a lot of plastic surgery and mm. the babies can't pick up on their little micro movements. So they end up psychopaths <laughs> because they are never able to read people because they can't, the mums can't express any feeling of empathy because oh. their face, faces don't move. Wow. And so those kids aren't picking up those special signals that they need. Wow. I have to say, I love that kind of leap that you just made. That's not, uh, you know, <laughs> I love that because it's, it, you know, it's implying that there is a theme present through some very diverse situations. And the mother, the mother baby thing, I mean, I think about that all the time because uh, it is that point where there's, uh, for the child, it would be so awesome to get into, into an a infant's brain because there's no division between relationship and re- physical reality, emotional reality, um, you know, uh, carnal reality. There's, there's, you know, the joys that, you know, the the pains are just pure non linguistic waves. And and what is that, you know, what is that like? And I, I suppose the dream, or maybe a psychedelic experience, but really the dream is the is the closest way we can return to that. Um, yeah, I mean, you may be able to um, have a memory of it by asking for that in a dream, potentially. Ooh, interesting. I never thought of that. That's something, of all the things, you know, if I had a wish for a, a genie, that might be one of the things that I would wish would be to return to that state. Um, yeah. It's quite interesting. I sometimes, do, I sometimes do a little exercise of... Uh, trying to get myself in the mindset of uh someone without language and yeah someone without um preconceptions of what things are and it's yeah. really weird when it's, you start doing that. it's crazy to think there was a time when when people said that infants had no thoughts that baby that prelingual people basically didn't have thoughts or minds and the, just the unbelievable ignorance of that statement. They're so much closer to the source of consciousness than we are. And their experience of it is so like, you know, I mean, they're, yeah, I have to imagine myself in like all sorts of weird situations. One of the other things that I really like doing is um, I really like those pictures that sailors did when they went on like very early um, long boat journeys and came to tropical exotic shores and had no expectation of what they were going to see there right and i try to get myself in that mind state sometimes of like imagine you're seeing this for the first time and it doesn't make any mm. sense or you know you see those the pictures that they drew of things like leopards or elephants and that's super weird because yeah. they had just seen them you know we've seen photos of everything we can kind of yeah. imagine at least what almost everything is mm. and you know, when you think about sailors would embark upon some of those voyages and they may even have believed that they were going to drop off the edge of the earth. That's mm. a pretty amazing concept to yeah. imagine yourself. Uh, yeah. 
approaching the edge of the earth or some magical, mystical isle, because also the North Pole was considered to be this mystical land. So, um, yeah, it would have been a really weird state of consciousness to go into that, you know, that, that unknown. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe there just isn't enough unknown in our world anymore. I fully, fully agree with that. I fully agree with that. And, and I think, uh, you know, it says something about human, the human brain that there were plenty of sailors willing to sail around and explore, knowing that they might just poof, fall off the edge of the earth and that would be the end of them. And it was still considered worthwhile to do that. Um, and mm. I, I think it's one of, it's, it, it's one of my kind of uh, um, bugaboos or whatever. One of the things, you know, one of my agendas in life is to encourage people to look at the people in their lives and even themselves as, as um, sort of having horizons that they haven't gone over yet. And, 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 mm. and like knowledge becomes this really toxic thing. When you say, I know someone, I know my wife, I know my children. Well, that, you know, if you think you perfectly know them, then, you know, I, I think you're going to fail them. You're going to fail to see them in some fundamental ways. And, and so I, when you, when you look at it that way is that there, there are unknowns and this, this ties into dreams. There are unknowns within myself. There are unknowns within the people uh, I know maybe things that even haven't been unlocked for themselves yet. And everyone is a, is a frontier. Um, then yeah, the world seems even just the small world around you That's seems small world around. much bigger. And mm. so, yeah. There's a lot of predictability these days, I think, you know, and perhaps there was, well, I know there's a lot less predictability in ancient times and even, even back in our own relatively recent history, we wouldn't know what was going on around the world. You know, our right. world's become a lot smaller. Now we know about all international events. We would never have known that. We're just living in our own little bubble. Right. Um, well, uh, we're at an hour and a half now. So um, uh, this has been uh, so interesting. I feel there have been, there, there are so many things uh, that, um, could be talked about. We didn't even get into the experience of lucid dreaming, but uh, um, there's a, a lot to a lot to chew on here. And you've got, I mean, you've got things online that people can go and find and read um, about that. And I encourage people to do that. Um, is there anything that you'd like to? Anything kind of fresh that's going on that you'd like to promote or, or anything like that? Well, one thing I've done recently is like a sleep hypnosis track. So something Mm. like I really enjoy doing sleep hypnosis. I've got a sleep hypnosis track on my website. And I think sleep hypnosis actually could be um, a quite quick and easy way of getting into the right mindset of um, setting yourself up for lucid dreaming, a part Mm. of your ritual for going to sleep. And I think it's important to, you know, have a bit of a dream ritual and have a nice space to sleep in Mm. and treat your bedroom as a ritual space where, you know, I think that's why I got into it so much when I was a kid, because I'll be like, right, I'm going in every night. I'd just think like I was going into some other dimension and I would have Mm. amazing dreams because of that. I really saw going to sleep as a really fun thing. And I'm always like, my daughter's uh, 12 now and I, she's she kind of into sleeping now and everything, but she's not that into going into dreams. Mm. And I always think that, you know, I'm so glad that I got into dreaming when I was young because 
it was massively enriching for yeah. me and it was an incredible creative outlet. And I feel that most of my creativity came out of the dream life. Well, and I think it's so cool. I want to applaud you because I think um, for many people, they have something that maybe does come a little bit more naturally to them than someone else. And, um, and it sounds like dreaming was that way for you because that wasn't, that wasn't my dream life. You know, I had fear and trembling around sleep and anxiety and stuff. And so it's, it's amazing that you're kind of, um, because you were able to have that early experience, you're kind of passing that along to people, um, in a way that's encouraging and, and not heavy handed. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's really cool and important work that you're doing, uh, especially during this time where we're stuck inside. Yeah. 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 Well, I think this is a really brilliant opportunity to get really into dreaming now, actually. Mm, totally. Um, so I'll put, I'll have links to your, uh, website, uh, and, uh, the mysteries .org is your, is your website. Is there any other websites that, no, uh, I've got, um, all of my stuff is on the mysteries.org. I right. have like my Etsy shop there and I run, um, a little lecture club down here called the explorers club. I do, I'm going to start doing a few more talks online with mm. guests uh, coming to my show. And then um, I'm also doing like a little kids thing called Egyptomaniacs, which is yeah. like art and craft yeah. lockdown activities about ancient Egypt. So yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's busy. Awesome. Well, it was such a pleasure to meet you, uh, it Sarah. It was a pleasure to meet you, Aaron. And thanks for being on the show. Um, and uh, have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you very much.